Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to A Good Football Show's Week 15 Recap Pod. My name is Pat Crane. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by everyone from the NBC Sports Edge team. And we're going to dive into all of Sunday's action, recapping each game, and getting into all the context that you need for your fantasy matchups beyond just the box score. Let's get into the games. The Dolphins defeated the Jets 31-24. to and The Dolphins have now won six straight after starting the season one and seven. Patrick Darty, the Dolphins didn't win by a ton here, but they did pull it out against the Jets. Yeah, it was not an overly impressive performance, but I guess a good a thing that good teams do is win games when they're not playing their best. But Tua Tagovailoa, you know, is not the best at progressing past his first read. Seemed to really, really, really miss his security blanket, Jalen Waddle, today. And this was all out of sorts, especially earlier in the game. Didn't seem like he really knew who to lock on to. And no one really picked up those lost short area targets. Like Albert Wilson didn't do anything. Isaiah Ford didn't do anything. Miles Gaskin wasn't targeted. Mike Jacecki caught only five passes. So it was just a shaky day for two on the Dolphins' passing attack. Both his interceptions were just horrendous. His, his first one, like the first read was covered. Then he kind of just panicked. And like heaved the ball into like Mike Jacecki no man's land, just a really, really poor decision. And the second one it was inside his own 20, let his eyes get red all the way, like a really, really easy pick six for the Jets. And it, it demonstrated the importance of Jalen Waddle to this Dolphins offense Sunday. Like it was, it was the classic, like they, it was, they missed a beat. You know, people say they didn't miss a beat. Uh, the <laughs> Dolphins missed at least one beat. Probably two to three beats without Jalen Waddle, and he has become just absolutely critical to this offense. Well, the beat data gets released on Monday, so don't have that tonight. But <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, <laughs> at least one yeah, beat. At least one. I'm guessing two or three. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk Jasicki uh, and Parker because they did have eight targets. Uh, Parker did got in the end. Did get in the end zone here. <laughs> week uh, fifteen. He did got. He did he's, got in the end zone. Yeah, he, he's always gotten in the end zone. Uh, four for 68 for Parker, five for 43 for Gasicki. Uh, really, I mean, the only kind of productive guys here, Isaiah Ford got three for 51 through the air. Uh, Duke Johnson had one for 20. We'll get to him in a minute. But uh, those those receiving options, I mean, 
what did you see from them? Like, was it was it really on Tua not having Waddle, or like, were did he just not have that much to work with with uh, his guys today? It was definitely on Tua with Parker. Parker looked pretty healthy and spry, kind of the best I've seen him in a long time. His touchdown was an eleven yarder where he put a move on Bryce Hall. This kind of dominated him one on one. He drew a defensive pass interference penalty in the end zone to set the Dolphins up at the one. He drew another end zone target. He he was looking the best I've seen him look maybe all season. Maybe he's just finally healthy. And th- that was a good development for the Dolphins and Devontae Parker. Mike Jacecki was more disappointing, but when you saw like stuff going wrong in his connection with Tua, it seemed to be Tua's fault too. He was just looking Mike Jacecki's way when, when he was just enveloped. Once, yeah. you know, once was the interception, and there was quite literally three to four jets around him. And another time he, he gave him an end zone target, so that was nice. But again, it was just into a crowd of jets. And this was as Devontae Parker was standing wide open in the end zone, by the way. So it could have very easily been like a two or three score day for Devontae Parker if two had been more in sync with him. But Jacecki, yeah, it was I don't know how Jacecki only caught five balls with Miles Gaskin not involved and Jalen Waddle out, but maybe it was just as simple as Tua wasn't seeing the field well on Sunday and was just kind of discombobulated without his number one weapon. Another guy not seeing the field was Miles Gaskin, who only had 10 rushes to Duke Johnson's 22. Duke Johnson goes 107 yards and two touchdowns. He also, as I mentioned, had one for 20 uh, on one target. And as you mentioned, Miles Gaskin was not targeted in this game. He only had 54 yards, 54 scoreless yards on the ground. What was going on here? I mean, it seemed like maybe Duke Johnson was the starter. Yeah, he was definitely the starter on Sunday. And we got like the classic. Um, we got like the classic during the game. Well, it would have been nice to know this during the week, where the CBS booth basically said they had been informed by Brian Flores that Miles Gaskin might not be ready for like his normal allotment of snaps after spending <laughs> spending a week on the COVID nineteen list. Someone's so, got to get these guys on Twitter. And you know, and part of that's on us. Obviously, we should be deducing that and like maybe guessing that and not having Miles Gaskin ranked quite as high as me. I mean, I had him hedged a little bit in the rankings, but yeah. So yeah, that was revealed during the game by Adam Archuleta and Greg Gumble that they had been told he might not be ready. But on the other hand, I mean, Duke Johnson was definitely the best a Dolphins running back on the ground has looked all year. We're like, this was, I mean, it's against a really bad defense, a really good matchup for running backs, but he was grinding out power yardage, the kind of thing he's never been given an opportunity to do. And, the 22 carries were a new career high. The first 20 carry game of his entire career. This is his seventh year in the NFL. The 107 yards rushing were a new career high. The two touchdown rushing performance was a new career high. So he was just, he just looked great. And, you know, he's never gotten that opportunity. He got typecast from his first year in the league as a third down back, even though I think he's the University of Miami's all time leading rusher. Like he was a very, very good rusher in college. And, it's not like he's gotten zero opportunities. He got a few opportunities. as like a three down back. I think a few kind of ill-fated ones with the Texans. Where yeah, he those were look, Texans opportunities. So yeah, where he didn't look he where he didn't look good. But I mean, Sunday you would have if like someone had like dropped you into this game. You would have just assumed that Duke Johnson has been the Dolphins starter all year, and like has been wow. like a really good because he it looked like the real deal, and I. It's hard to believe, even with Miles Gaskin clearly being somewhat COVID-related, like the genie's not going back in the bottle with Duke John. Like he's not going to go back to like, you know, like 
deep like end of bench stash next week for the Dolphins or for fantasy managers. Uh, I mean, they are playing the Saints, uh, so a tough matchup there. But yeah, like, it's harder you, to see a bigger swing than the the Jets of the Saints. Yeah, yeah, especially in the run. I mean, yeah. the Saints have uh, kind of taken on water against the pass, but not against the run. That remains a team strength for the New Orleans football Saints. Let's move over to the Jets side. Uh, Michael Carter also made his debut or his return, I should say, not his debut. Um, and we were promised a big workload uh, by uh, by Sala. He mentioned that, you know, we see a lot of Michael Carter today. We didn't really. He only had eight rushes. He had one reception for two yards on two targets, turned his eight rushes into 18 rushing yards. And Tevin Coleman matched him with eight for 50, uh, matched him with eight rushes, but obviously quite a bit more productive. So, uh, thoughts on the backfield here, uh, and you know, are you just assuming that Michael Carter is kind of working back from his injury? Probably. I mean, it was it was discouraging though because he only outtouched Tevin Coleman nine to eight. Uh, Tevin Coleman outgained him fifty to eighteen on the ground. Michael Carter had nothing resembling a chunk gain. Tevin Coleman did have a few. I mean, Tevin Coleman, you know, is like you know, the randomness of eight carries for two running backs looked like the better like runner on Sunday. But I mean, yeah, it's just, that could just be statistical randomness. Obviously when you get eight carries, you could just happen to have the eight carries where there's no running room, but it was disappointing from that perspective. It was good. And that Michael Carter did out snap uh, according to preliminary snap counts from pro football focus. He did out snap Tevin Coleman, 31, 21, but you know, the one target, very, very disappointing, especially because like the jets were kind of like emptying out their bag of tricks on Sunday. Like, doing all sorts. They were doing like crazy cross field passes. They did this once or twice where they had like a receiver running downfield and actually throw threw it back to like do cross field. Like they were doing stuff from like, like 1940s, basically like they were doing anything they could to gain yardage on Sunday. It was disappointing. Like Mike Carter wasn't involved. It was like Braxton Berrios was like their trick play guy. Uh, he must have an arm. And uh, so they, it was disappointing not to see him like schemed up at all like that, but yeah, he did at least have the snap advantage, and he also did have the touch advantage, the healthy scratch, Ty Johnson. So they must be pretty big believers in his health, and hopefully he's just getting his conditioning up because next week the Jets do have the Jacksonville Jaguars. So we might be forced to leap of faith back in oh, to Michael Carter flex well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't ready to hear that, but uh... – <laughs> I know. It's going to be tough. It's going to be a tough decision. <laughs> um what about the Jets receivers? I mean, you mentioned they were kind of pulling out all the stops here, but we still have Jameson Crowder leading the way with 40 yards. Ryan Griffin had 39 yards. Tyler Croft had 35. I mean, it's just, I don't want to read any more of these names. <laughs> and yeah, it's Jameson Crowder. I mean, he's passing up the PPR opportunity of a lifetime. It's been two games since Corey Davis and Elijah Moore were both removed from the lineup, and he has eight catches for 59 yards in those two games. Uh, he did retake the target's lead over Braxton Berrios. I think he out-targeted Braxton Berrios eight to two on Sunday. It was maybe eight to one, but you know, five forty. He's not doing anything with it. Braxton Berrios. They've already shown he can have a pop-up target game, and they were scheming Braxton Berrios looks on Sunday. So it's not like Jamison Crowder is like unequivocally in the lead. If you know these kind of like underneath PPR type touches that we love, and just I don't know how you can have any faith in Jamison Crowder heading in to the fantasy semifinals, even for you know this dream matchup in the Jacksonville Jaguars. It's just Jack, Jameson Crowder has been the kind of player throughout his career, I guess, where 
It, it, he is the classic, like, well, never relying on Jamison Crowder again. And he catches then like 11 passes for 112 yards. But I don't see how you can go back to the Jamison Crowder well, even against the Jaguars. Yeah, I mean, Zach Wilson's a quarterback. He threw for 170 yards today, uh, 13 for 23. Uh, I mean, <laughs> even against the Jaguars, like, I couldn't imagine that I'd feel good about ever starting anything related to Zach Wilson. No, at 55 of his yards came on the opening drive. They had a really well-scripted opening drive. So, you know, they have the Mike, the the Kyle Shanahan disciple at offensive coordinator. It was a sh- very Shanny-like opening drive. It was really balanced. They had some really nice designed passing plays. They had some really nice runs. But after that, it was like the only time Zach Wilson made a play was if he happened to like spin out of a sack. And like there was just like Lord of the Flies mm-hmm. chaos with the pocket. He made a few plays that way. But beyond the opening drive, he didn't have an interception for the second time in three games. Only the third time all year, he did lose a fumble. But beyond that heavily scripted opening drive, there were not many positives once again for Zach Wilson. All right, Patrick Darty, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Other Pat. I will stop calling you Other Pat. The Steelers defeated the Titans 19-13. to Najee Harris held to just 18 rushing yards, his lowest mark of the season. Chris Allen still got the win, even though their first-round rookie had his worst day of the year. It was just I, – I can't even really figure out how they wound up winning this game. I mean, this is – I mean, the – Pittsburgh Steelers, they had less than 200 total yards of offense. I mean, they were two for 11 on third down, and yet somehow, some way, they wind up like getting the win over Tennessee. I mean, if you were to take a look at just the just general team efficiency, uh, like team efficiency stats, like for Pittsburgh, you would think there's just absolutely no way. Especially if you look at what Tennessee was able to do on the other side of the ball from their running game, it's like how does Pittsburgh wind up getting like winning winning this particular matchup? But if you look at the four turnovers that uh, Tennessee had. They were at least in like in Pittsburgh, still capable of moving the ball, whether it's through Harris for a little bit, but if not, some of the chunk plays that he was able to get to Deontay Johnson, because like I think it was like the very first pass of the game went to Johnson for 16 yards. So it's just like little things here and there that allowed them to move the ball down the field. Honestly, Chris Boswell is probably like their MVP at this point. He at least he was for this game with all the field goals that were made. But overall, it's just I don't see how like in any other game in any other week. There's no way that Steelers wind up winning this game, but against the Titans and the problems that they're continuing to have on offense, they wind up getting this one. I mean, wind up winning this game. Yeah, Harris had 12 for 18, and he also uh, only had two for eight as a receiver on five targets. So just a really poor game from Harris, but Chase Claypool doesn't have a reception in this game, only two targets. Um, Somehow, this is listing him as zero receptions for 12 yards in the Yahoo box score. So I don't know what's going on there, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, he didn't have much going on. Uh, and Pat Fryermuth only had four for 37 and he had a concussion in this game was knocked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Deontay Johnson finishes five for 38. So yeah, I mean, Ben Roethlisberger only had 148 yards passing. You mentioned there's just not, not less than 200 total yards, I believe uh, you mentioned. So, Really rough here for the Steelers. Any anything else to note on the Steelers other than it was just kind of a a throwaway kind of day? 
Yeah, I think that was basically it because I don't even know what their offensive play calling decisions were because I think it was on their maybe third or fourth drive. I mean, they ha- they had made a couple of plays and like uh, Claypool's uh, box score like shows the 12 yards because he did have a couple of end arounds. So some of it was probably on the rushing production, but there was a third down call where they wound up like throwing a fade to Ray Ray McLeod at some point. So it's like, I don't know what was going on there. Uh, the Farmouth like injury, that one actually looked pretty brutal because he looked dazed after the first hit that he sustained. And then there was a second hit that wound up taking him down and it looked like he was concussed, like even before he hit the floor. So, mm-hmm. I mean, overall it was just yeah for me it has to be just one of those throwaway days for the pittsburgh offense hopefully i mean if ben roethlisberger has a rushing touchdown you know it's got to be bad for the rest of the offense so yeah (laughs) this is just one of those like throwaway days for pittsburgh on the whole okay uh on the Titans side i mean it's got to be a throwaway day as well when you lose to the team that just had a throwaway day on offense uh you mentioned boswell he had four field goals which is how the titans did end up losing here but uh, let's start with Deontay Foreman, who kind of the highlight of the whole game in a way. He has 108 yards, but I saw that he was kind of in and out of this game. He also was not being used around the goal line. From what I saw, Ryan Tannehill had a quarterback sneak to get into the end zone, uh, which obviously cost the entire backfield the only rushing touchdown of the day. But what did you notice in terms of the, the usage between Hilliard, McNichols, and Foreman? So they were actually being used like fairly evenly across uh, on early downs. I think on it was the very first drive. Uh, we, you could see like Foreman getting mixed in. Like he came in early, but then he was immediately injured, so he came out. So then afterwards, it was a mix of Hilliard on base downs and then McNichols on the pass downs. And then Foreman comes back. And then still, I mean, it's Foreman was getting mixed in on early downs, but then you would see almost like in different series, a different running back was the one getting the carry. But I think overall, it was good to see, I mean, almost every single one of them uh, between McNichols, between Hilliard, between Foreman. I mean, both Foreman and Hilliard, they averaged like almost like five yards per carry. And even though like Foreman wound up over 108 yards, it's not like he had at least a, a bunch of chunk runs or even like a, a take that back. It's not like he had like a one run that was 40 to 50 yards. His longest was just 20. So even if you try and do the, the math that some analysts do by, well, if you take away one run and you see this, but it, take away that one run that gives him 88 yards on like 20 some odd carries. So he's still over like four and a half yards per carry. So just overall, I mean, they came into this game against Pittsburgh's defense that was 32nd in rush EPA allowed. And it really started to show towards the, like in the second half or so. I think TJ Watt that like, came out for at least a play or two uh, for an injury, a couple other injuries sustained across the back end of their defense as well. And you can really see it didn't matter who was in the backfield at that point, but it was good to see Foreman. Like even at one point he got injured and you can tell he was grabbing at his ankle and you need to come out and get retaped, but to even come back in, get over the century mark, I think that really shows like how much the team is going to continue to lean on and moving forward. And if Tennessee has any hopes of still continuing to make their playoff run, I think it's going to be mostly on Foreman. I mean, it was good to see him actually being used somewhat in the in the red zone. That Tannehill sneak actually came on a play that where he came out a couple plays earlier because of the injury. I didn't get to get retaped if I'm remembering the sequence mm. correctly. So I think Foreman should still be the guy once like from a high value touch perspective. But then afterwards, it's like we know what the other two hold, like where their value is at. McNichols on pass downs, maybe Hilliard on third down, mix of the two in uh, in two minute drill type of situations. But it should be Foreman to start the game from here on out. One thing that you know has been the case for most of the season with Tennessee is that when they get 
the rushing game going. They can play action off it, and we see a productive passing day from Ryan Tannehill. They had 183 rushing yards here from the backs, excluding Tannehill's 18 yards rushing. So pretty productive day on the ground, but Tannehill goes 153 yards here. What was the issue with the passing game, and how much did it have to do with the fact that he doesn't have A.J. Brown and that Julio Jones exited this game, I think, pretty early with a hamstring injury? Yes, and I think that's part of the issue. If And this is me just like possibly overanalyzing the situation, but it's like if you game plan or if you go through practice throughout the entire week with Julio Jones like in your game plan, you're expecting to run specific concepts, you're expecting to run or at least expect to execute plays with the way that Julio Jones plays. But if you drop off from Julio Jones to Nick Westbrook-Akine to Chester Rogers, Obviously, that's a bit tougher for any quarter, quarterback to have to adjust to mid-game. So I would I would want to chalk most of that up to the fact that they expected him to be there. He winds up pulling out and then announced out like midway through the third quarter. And this is what happens like afterwards. It's like you're really having to rely on Anthony Ferks, who, who had a couple of drops, plus a fumble uh, on top of that. I mean, Chester Rogers, NWI. I mean, all of those players, like while might be good role players in and of themselves, but if Ryan Tannehill is forced to drop back and rely on them in order to convert third, like third and longs or something like that, it becomes a much more tougher dice roll at that point. So I can see why Tannehill, for all of his efficiency and for all the things that we've talked about him being able to do as a passer for the past few years, I mean, just that talent drop off is a bit too much to surmount. Yeah, Nick Westbrook-Akina had 32 yards receiving and Chester Rogers had 30. And those are the only two receivers that were above the two running backs, uh, Foreman and McNichols, just behind them. So uh, nothing really going here among the receivers. It's interesting that that Julio went out that late. I thought maybe it was potentially very early in the game because he only had one target, did not record a reception. So, um, you know, a little concerning for for the uh, the Titans passing game for sure. But let's move to the Bengals, who defeated the Broncos 15-10. to the big news here is that Teddy Bridgewater sustained an injury. Oh, it was, I mean, really scary at first. And I I almost think back to the scary injury that Donald Parham had at the start of week 15, where in real time, it almost looked like there was nothing wrong. And then after you see the player's reaction, after you see the training staff and coaches come out in the field, you instantly realize like, oh, this is much bigger than what you initially thought you saw in real time. And that was exactly what happened with the Teddy Bridgewater thing. I mean, he's diving for the first down on like a third and five, third and six. And on at first, it looked like the defender, uh, Joey uh, Joe Bocci, if I'm remembering the, his name correctly, comes across and hits him as he's going down. And then when he hits the turf, it looked like you know, and the ball came out like uh, caused by uh, the, uh, the ball hitting the floor. I thought he was going to pop back up and be dead. But once he stayed down there for a while and you could see the camera immediately pan away, it was just like a much larger situation. Good to hear that. He was transported to the hospital. Apparently, uh, he's like all of his extremities like were fine and he was able to move around. But just in that moment, you can start to really feel like the gravity of the situation. And it wasn't the last time that the cart had to be brought out for either of, uh, you know, for either of Cincinnati or Denver. So it's just one of those like football moments that we just hope that we really don't have to see all too often. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully he's able to recover quickly. Let's talk about Drew Locke, though, because we'll probably see him next week. How did he look out there? And he had 12 attempts. Bridgewater had 22 before exiting. So, you know, we got a, a little bit of a sample here from Locke. And obviously we've seen Locke before, but but how did he look out there today? 
Uh, I mean, well, the first off, I mean, the the big elephant in the room is what most folks will be talking about. It's just like one of the wildest plays that I've ever seen is where he tried to do the quarterback sneak from the five or six yard line. And then somehow or another, I mean, he gets met in the backfield by one of Cincinnati's defenders who rips the ball away from him, trips, gets up, runs for about 20 to 25 yards afterwards, gets the ball chopped out of his hands and he winds up losing the fumble there. So just absolute chaos. Uh, from like on both sides. And I think I've seen folks like actually post snippets of the play by play for it. And it's essentially just a paragraph of words because (laughs) you're trying to figure out, you know, who had the ball, where it was fumbled. It was fumbled again. And then since he was uh, ruled being down after contact, when Locke touched him on the, uh, after the exchange or like the fumble or whatever you want to call it, the Cincinnati still wound up with the ball. Yeah, it was just, it was just absolutely wild. But I think past that you could kind of see, at the very least, what Drew Locke provides, and we kind of knew about this uh, about him as a passer last season, was that he's just more aggressive. Teddy Bridgewater, I think he only took maybe two to three shots like downfield, but uh, and that was about it. Other than that, it was the passes to the running backs, passes to Albert O or Noah Fant, uh, but really didn't see any shots downfield except for maybe a couple to Cortland Sutton earlier in the game. But once Locke came in, we started to see more of those like deeper passes. I mean, Tim Patrick was also getting a deep pass, Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy. Now, game script was probably a larger uh, factor in determining where Locke was going to go with the ball. But at the very least, if you, know, you, want, you have to rely on any of the Denver pass catchers moving forward, I mean, there is some hope that Drew Locke is going to be the one to push the ball down the field a bit more. But the, a couple of the passes, they were, they were off. I mean, the I think one of the his last few passes like in the fourth quarter especially on a deep crosser to Cortland Sutton I mean just a hair off so hopefully with the full week of practice he can start to get his timing and rhythm back down uh, with the receivers but overall I think that's really all we can take away from from Locke as a passer because we just know that he can be volatile we know that he can be inaccurate so if he is one he winds up being the starter for next week which is most likely going to be the case at the very least with a full week of practice he can get that rhythm down and maybe we can expect production from the receivers not much production from the receivers here. Jerry Judy did not record a reception on four targets. Cortland Sutton had two for 12 on seven targets. You mentioned Tim Patrick. He did have 42 yards and a touchdown, recording three receptions on five targets. The tight ends were the most involved here. Uh, Albert O actually had three for 58 on four targets, and Noah Fant just behind him at five for, five for 57 on six targets. Uh, so kind of leading the way there. But it's difficult to really take anything from these receivers, given the, the likely quarterback change, at least as we look ahead to next week. But this is truly a week-by-week game here now as we're in the fantasy playoffs. Uh, let's talk, before we close out here, the running backs. Javante Williams, Melvin Gordon, both had 15 rushes. Williams had 72 yards. Melvin Gordon had 53. And then Javante Williams had four targets to Melvin Gordon's one, uh, only nine yards to Melvin Gordon's eight. He caught all four of his targets, but... Uh, only had nine yards on four receptions, but still kind of nice to see him getting uh, more targets than Gordon. I believe he also was uh, out targeting Gordon last week as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that continued to be the case this week, which is good to see. And then on top of that, uh, Javante Williams, he still has that ability to go like just straight Marshawn Lynch on people. There was actually a play where they were backed up to about their three or four yard line and Javante gets the, uh, gets the exchange 
he's at the two yard line. Uh, I think it was Trey Waynes from Cincinnati, like has him dead to rights, which would have been a massive loss, like for the Broncos backing up even closer on goal line. Javante shakes the tackle and actually turns what would have been a two yard loss into about a 10 yard gain. And that's just one of the many examples of Williams throughout the entire season of him using like his ability to miss tackles and like just plow through guys in order to make like big plays. And so, I think now seeing that that separation in between the two, and while I think Mike Munchak, uh, their offensive line coordinator, uh, like he's been able to put together a lot of those like different types of blocking schemes for both backs, and you can see them kind of uh, I guess leaning to the strengths of either. I mean, where Javante Williams he can be that power back, Melvin Gordon can be more of the slasher type, so they can mix some things up. But if your entire offense is constrained by the passing game, that's where you might see a dip in the production for both of them. But it was still good to see them both being used in the passing game. I expect that to still be the case regardless of if Drew Locke is under center or uh, or Teddy Bridgewater. But I think either way, I think Williams has kind of solidified himself as the 1A to Melvin Gordon's 1B. Okay, Uh, let's move over to the Bengals side. Joe Burrow only threw for 157 yards here, only had 22 attempts. Tyler Boyd ended up leading the way with 96 yards and a touchdown, but T Higgins only had 23 yards, two receptions for 23 yards on three targets. Jamar Chase had one reception for three yards on four targets. This was not what we were promised. This is not what we were getting earlier in the year with this team. Why have they done this to us, Chris Allen? I have no idea. I mean, it almost seemed like, Zach Taylor had read the tweets and listened to even his own advice after being somewhat sad about their lack of aggression uh, after their loss last week, because in their first drive, they came out and it was just pass, pass, pass. I mean, and it was maybe shorter passes. I mean, we saw Tyler Boyd getting mixed in like fairly early and I get it. I mean, in that uh, the hope was that that aggression would have stayed. But they wound up having, I think they went maybe three or four plays on their very first drive. But then afterwards, it was running on first down. I mean, mixing on first down was just essentially the staple of their offense for almost the rest of the game. I can recall maybe two to three drives in total or two to three first downs in total where it wasn't a a short run to Mixon. And so this type of play calling, uh, that was a problem for them in the San Francisco game. And really only the fact that, I mean, their defense was able to bail them out and hold Drew Locke uh, like, uh, on their final drive is that's the only reason why they didn't win this game. I mean, a touchdown would have wound up losing them the game and we would have had to have the same conversation as we had last week regarding their lack of aggression, the conservative play calling that's really kind of held the entire offense back. And I've seen all the tweets like from the beat reporters. And I'm asking myself the same question. It's in those types of situations in the third and fourth quarter where they need to be able to have some sort of extended drive in order to wind up winning the game. Zach Taylor is taking the ball out of Joe Burrow's hands. They're still not allowing him to be the one to close out these games. They're continuing to rely on Joe Mixon, who actually wound up leaving the game at one point with a knee or knee or lower leg injury. It's like, I don't understand like why the play calling is so conservative, why they're leaving out Joe Burrow in ter- like in these types of situations. But again, as a Cincinnati fan, I'm just happy they got the win, but it just, it scares me about what things are going to look like as their playoff picture, at least it improves, but I don't know if this is going to hold up moving forward. Yeah, it scares me too. And, you know, it's not a Cincinnati fan. Keep this out of the playoffs, please. Either get it together or don't make <laughs> yes, the playoffs. Yes, please. Pick yeah. <laughs> All right, Chris, thanks so much. Anytime. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. 
Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Give the gift of NBC Sports Edge Plus this holiday season. Get 15% off annual subscriptions when you use the code HOLIDAY15 at checkout. This offer turns to coal on December 31st, so visit NBCSportsEdge.com slash Edge Plus today. And remember, all our premium tools for fantasy, DFS, and betting are included in one low Edge Plus subscription. The Lions defeated the Cardinals 30-12. to This is the third time since 1970 when a team with the worst record has beaten a team with the best record. Hmm. It's happened with the 95 Cowboys and the 04 Pats. And both of those teams, I presume that lost, went on to win the Super Bowl. So this is a pretty weird stat. Maybe this is a good sign that uh, the Cardinals dropped it here. It's going to motivate them to take down the whole thing. Denny Carter, uh, are you buying that? <laughs> I, I we, We'll go with that. Sure. They, I think that it's clear that after the Cardinals laid an egg against uh, Detroit and looked like a bottom five team, I think that we can say safely they're on their way to a Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's start with the Lions. I mean, let's, they, they won. So uh, yeah. congratulations to the Lions. Let's start with them. I'm going to Ross St. Brown, the big story here. Another 11 targets here went eight for 90 with a touchdown emerging as uh as a like real factor here in the Lions receiving game 37 targets over three weeks for St. Brown uh he had a 40 plus percent target share here against the Cardinals Jared Goff only threw 26 passes and completed 21 of them by the way very efficient day for him but yeah I think when with TJ Hawkinson out after undergoing thumb surgery uh, St. Brown just becomes a target vacuum underneath for golf. And we, and we know how much golf loves to check down uh, in that area of the field. And that that's where St. Brown lives. So, you know, he doesn't really necessarily have to like a break a big one off. Although he, he did stay, he took one uh, to the house uh, after a short reception. And that was nice to see. Um, but like PPR wise, he's uh, a bordering cheat code area. here. Yeah. He does feel like, I don't know, maybe Jameson Crowder a few years ago, or you mm-hmm. know, just like a true PPR dynamo. Yes, for sure, and and he's and he's clearly the wide receiver one in the offense. It's and Josh Reynolds is, I would say, you know, the wide receiver two, and then Cleve Raymond and the rest are behind them. Yeah, and uh, Reynolds had six for sixty-eight and a touchdown. Cleve Raymond just two for twenty. 
so yeah, the like decently productive day for Goff, as you mentioned, very efficient, 80%, 81% completion percentage, three touchdowns, only threw for 216 yards, but it's a much better day than we expect him to have against the Cardinals. What about the backfield here where Craig Reynolds had 112 yards rushing, 26 uh, rushing attempts. Jamar Jefferson just had five rushing attempts. Uh, Godwin Iwabuke only had two rushing attempts. So Craig Reynolds kind of running away with the backfield here with Jamal Williams still on the COVID list and DeAndre Swift still has an injured shoulder. Yeah, and and here's the thing. Reynolds looks kind of good. I I mean, he's, he's bursting through tackles. He's making something where there's nothing. Um, you know, the the Cardinals whole team looked asleep in this game. And I don't know if the time difference or whatnot, you know, but but uh, um, Reynolds just hit them like a ton of bricks early on, uh, was way more energized. The whole Lions team was way more motivated. And I think I think that Reynolds kind of led the offense in that in that direction on a non-statistical note. But yeah, domination. Uh, with with 26 carries for 112, he didn't uh, didn't get. I don't believe he saw a green a green zone touch, which is a little uh, a, a little surprising. But he had a long run of 27 yards. There was se- several times when the Lions were getting very conservative, and and as you know, uh, the Lions do lean toward the run a lot, very run heavy mm-hmm. uh, approach. But uh, you know they were trying to salt the game away. And it looked like the Cardinals had stopped Reynolds a couple times, and he would just burst out and gain another three, four, five yards every time, it seemed like. So uh, I, I guess Jamal Williams will be back at some point from COVID, and I, I don't know if DeAndre Swift will be back. I kind of doubt it at this point. Um, but Reynolds should be rostered everywhere, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move to the Cardinals side. James Conner and Chase Edmonds kind of in a split here. As we sort of expected, but it, you know, it's sort of tough to, to gauge exactly how it would go because of the both of them coming back from ankle injuries. What did you see out of the backfield? So Chase Edmonds saw four of his six carries in the second half. They, the Cardinals seemed intent on getting him involved to start the second half, and it seemed to be working until the game script just kind of got sideways for Arizona, and there was really no running the ball. Um, in the uh, late third quarter and into the fourth quarter. But so Edmonds ended up with six carries for 53 yards. He had a long rush of 23. Uh, Connor had 39 yards on eight carries. So Edmonds was far more efficient with his rushing attempts. Uh, I did find it interesting that, you know, Connor, he saw two targets. Uh, Edmonds was not targeted in this game. That's not exactly what we got used to before uh, Edmonds ankle injury a while back. Um, but you know, the, the, the Connor deal, I think, I think, you know, the days of like mega upside Connor are probably over, uh, now that Edmonds is back. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, on the receiving side, Kirk, Christian Kirk certainly seems to have more upside with 12 targets here, went nine for 94 and a touchdown. And this is in a game where the offense really struggled. Kyler Murray, uh, kind of had a decent day with 257 and one through the air, also throwing an interception, but. This kind of like big target share is, is pretty encouraging for Christian Kirk. And then Zach Ertz also had 11 targets, bigger target share than than I think we would have expected. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, a couple of Ertz's uh, targets came uh, after Kyler Murray had been pulled in the blowout loss to the Lions, which is just like a sentence that I was not expecting to say tonight. But uh, um, just just for context, you know, he he um, he did see a couple looks in that uh, garbage time frame. 
uh, but but Christian Kirk's role was really nice. Got a, a few downfield shots. He really is the only downfield threat in this Arizona offense right now. Um, in this post post Hopkins offense, he he caught the touchdown uh, after getting you know getting free. Uh, and it, despite it was uh, despite a, an underthrown ball from Kyler Murray, who had a lot of really questionable throws today, o- overthrown, underthrown, it, he was everywhere, all over the place. Uh, but but Kirk was so wide open that despite it being underthrown, he still uh, caught the touchdown. So I, I you know I, I felt really good about uh, Kirk's treatment in in this offense. It, it seemed like uh, he he definitely has far you know much more of a ceiling than aj green going forward that makes sense yeah and i should have noted that colt mccoy did play uh yeah a little bit here he had nine attempts and so some of the statistical stuff will be a little off like for example did andy isabella play in garbage time or normal time he did it was yeah that was garbage <laughs> okay <laughs> unfortunately for, for the isabella truthers i'm sorry <laughs> Uh, any any notes here on AJ Green, Antoine Wesley, uh, kind yeah. of the, the outside guys here, and, and Rondell Moore, who saw three targets, went three for nine. Yeah, Moore seemed to be struggling through some sort of injury. He he w- he was down for a while. He was coming in and out of the lineup in the second half. I'm, I'm not quite sure. There's something to watch uh, going forward. But uh, AJ Green saw two end zone targets um, in this one, and neither of them were close because, like I said, Kyler Murray was just not very accurate throughout this game. Uh, but it does seem like A.J. Green would be like, you know, the primary inside the 10 sort of target for uh, Kyler Murray. And that and that does give, you know, gives him touchdown appeal, even if he's not going to be super efficient, which he he hasn't been in, in many years and, and was not today with uh, eight targets. He caught four of them for 64 yards. Maybe he's uh, the, the Adam Thielen. Of of this offense, but uh, I mean, it's just it's just like these hopeless fade passes, you know, to the corner of the end zone where it just, you just know as soon as it leaves Murray's hands, you're like, okay, well that that has no shot. Then he's the Kenny Galladay. That's much worse. Oh. Let's move to the Packers who defeated the Ravens thirty-one to thirty in a game that you could have easily lost had the Ravens converted. Yeah, just a two-point conversion at the end of the game. Aaron Rodgers tied Brett Favre's passing touchdown record here with 442, and Mark Andrews became the first tight end in Ravens franchise hit, franchise history with 1,000 plus receiving yards. Andrews was dominant once again. You know he had 111 yards and a touchdown last week against Cleveland. Comes out this week and goes berserk again with Tyler Huntley really focusing in on him. the The Packers refused to change their coverage to, <laughs> you know, to adjust. For uh, for Andrews, seeing so many looks, they continually covered him with with a linebacker who had no chance uh, against Andrews. And time and again, he would uh, turn his receptions into into longer gains. He he scored twice. Just a, a a crazy crazy outing for for Mark Andrews. Him and uh, I should note that him and Marquise Brown uh, took in sixty seven percent of Baltimore's targets combined. Here that you know obviously doesn't leave much for anybody else, including Rashad Bateman, who after last week's very encouraging outing against Cleveland, uh, only had one catch here on two targets for five five total yards. So mm-hmm. really down day, but it it seems like Huntley uh, really focused in on on Brown and Andrews, which is not a shock to anybody. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely not. And uh, Andrew's certainly earning that with 136 yards and, and two touchdowns. Uh, really, really impressive stuff. What did you see out of Huntley overall? I mean, he did rush for 73 yards and two touchdowns on 13 attempts, threw for 215 yards as well, didn't throw any interceptions, threw two touchdowns, had a 70% completion percentage. I mean, yeah. pretty strong day, it felt like. It was. It was. And, you know, uh, it wasn't one of those strong days that, that could have been bad if a, if a tip ball had gone this way or that way. There there weren't a bunch of almost interceptions like you see from like a Taysom Hill type. I mean, I mean, he if he didn't have the throw, he didn't make the throw. You know, he pulled it down uh, and he and he ran sometimes for a significant gain, like we saw in the fourth quarter, streaking down the, the left sideline for a 20 plus yard gain against Packers. So. Uh, I, I thought Huntley played really smart, uh, was, was, you know, very poised in the second half as they attempted their comeback. Um, unfortunately, you know, the analytical decision did not pay off in the end for the Ravens. And I'm sure we will, we will not hear the end of that this week. We won't, uh, but that that's okay. <laughs> but let's move to, uh, the Packers side of things here where like, you know, if you want to slam the, the Ravens for, you know, going for two whatever. But to me, how do you let, you know, the Tyler Huntley led Ravens get to the point where they're even in the position to beat you with a two point conversion. You know, it seems like the Packers were playing super slow from what I watched, which is fitting with what they've done over the last two years. Um, Aaron Rodgers had a pretty efficient day uh, through three touchdowns, but uh, what did you see from, from Rodgers in the offense and, and why are they so afraid to, to open this up? I, I I wish I knew, and yeah, I, I I read your your column this week and read about how slow the the offense has been. Uh, it, like you said, in every situation, it doesn't it doesn't matter whether they're down, whether they're up, whether it's tied, what you know, whatever. They just play very slow, and that that continued today. I guess when you're that efficient, twenty three of, of thirty one for two sixty eight and three touchdowns, it I guess it, it works out. It works out in the end. Um, but, uh, this was a, this was an atypical target distribution, I think for, for Rogers, you know, instead of, uh, like a, like an alpha performance from Devonte Adams, he saw seven targets, which was tied for the team lead, uh, with Marquez Valdez Scantling. And then, uh, Alan Lazard was third with, with four targets. It was just spread around, uh, um, you know, Adams hasn't had fewer than 10 targets, recently I, I forget exactly the stat but it's it, it, at least a month or so since he's seen uh this little tar- this little small of a target share uh he still came up with 44 yards and a touchdown which is which is fine but you know R- rogers uh seems to just take whatever he wanted against this injury marred baltimore mm-hmm. secondary and you know they came in with a lot of secondary injuries and then they suffered two more today they had practice squad players coming in uh you know cornerbacks wearing the number 17 i don't you know it's just just wow. just the the, <laughs> the weirdest and and uh, he and then you know rogers is so hyper aware of everything on the field that he know he knows what to do when those guys come in and he, imme- he immediately picked on them for touchdowns that's wow that's uh that's really rough for the ravens um what about the backfield here uh uh, AJ Dillon had a touchdown, but he only had seven rushes to Aaron Jones's 13. He had 22 rushing yards to Aaron Jones's 58. From what I saw, it looked like Dillon maybe could have had a second rushing touchdown, but was stopped short and they went elsewhere. 
following that. But uh, yeah. Jones led the way in terms of the overall touches. He also had two targets going two for 12. AJ Dillon only one target going one for 13. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Jones is running hot on touchdowns right now. He has three touchdowns over the past two weeks. Uh, this this touchdown came on a pick play where Alan Lazard threw a gratuitous pick against a Baltimore linebacker that freed up Jones for a wide-open touchdown uh, in the second half. I, I, you know, the uh, the Jones usage was nice to see. If, you, if you're if you a, a Jones drafter and were put off by <laughs> by the split last week, this was good to see. The touchdown stuff is just hard to imagine that 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 can hold up over the over the long run. Um, and, you know, and if and if he started Dylan today, it was pretty disappointing. You know, he he seemed to be uh, on his way to a, a decent day with a touchdown in the first half. But he ends up with only seven rushes for 22 yards. Uh, really didn't do anything with him. Six yards was his was his long rush of the day. But then, you know, I, I thought about it a little bit after the game and it's like, well, the, the Ravens are like the ultimate pass funnel defense, mm-hmm. and they're actually pretty stiff against the run. So I guess this kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I sh- yeah, I should have mentioned that uh, Aaron Jones did have a touchdown as a receiver. Dylan got his as a rusher. Um, but yeah, I think that'll wrap it up for this game, unless uh, any anything else we should cover. One thing, uh, um, the days of Devontae Freeman being a workhorse in the Baltimore mm. backfield seem to be overish i don't know i it, latavius murray came out in the second half took basically all the carries he ended up with seven i know i know these numbers don't sound significant but considering that freeman had seen at least 14 carries in four straight games uh the fact that he saw six and murray saw seven and murray was effective with 48 yards uh to 22 yards for freeman i think that's that's significant going forward and un- unfortunately for Freeman. It looked like Freeman was a pretty reliable option, but he's looking he's looking a lot shakier after this one. Yeah, I, I agree that it's significant. I mean, it's significant in the sense that you basically have to cross off Freeman, and we don't want to be crossing off players right now. We're crossing off enough players. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, it's uh, very disappointing for those who thought that they had uh, picked up a, a workhorse on the waiver wire many weeks ago. Yes. All right, Danny Carter, thanks so much. The Texans defeated the Jaguars 30-16 to in a game that now puts the Jaguars in position for the number one pick in the draft. Rivers McCown, you took a week off from doing the Texans on this pod, but you come back to see your Texans victorious. Dangle made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> he made you take the week off? Or he made you no, come back? He made me come back, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, well, hey, you know, this is the right week to come back. Uh, what did you see out there? Brandon Cooks, let's start with him. He had the big game here, uh, kind of leading the way for the Texans through the air. Yeah, it wasn't uh, anything that you would describe as uh, pretty or like a amazing downfield passing game or anything. Uh, his first touchdown was a RPO where he kind of deked that he was blocking and then sped off uncovered. So that was mm-hmm. nice. And then his second touchdown to put the game away was a screen pass on kind of a huge big blitz to the uh, middle of the Texans defense and uh, was able to get some blocks. Nice. Well, you know, those still count. He had 102 yards, seven receptions on 10 targets. Uh, Philip Dorsett was the second receiver on the Texans. So they are still, in fact, the Texans. Davis Mill had a pretty nice day here, 209 yards and two touchdowns uh, going 19 for 30. So like it, it seems like a pretty capable day out of Davis Mills. What were your thoughts? 
Um, he's okay when he attacks zones. Uh, the Texans do a pretty good job setting him up early most weeks. Um, he they, they get a script together that works pretty well against the opponent. Once they adjust, Mills gets a little bit thrown off, and before he had hit the screen touchdown to Cooks, I think he was like something like four of fourteen in the second half. Mm-hmm. Like like it wasn't pretty at the end there, but hey, it's fantasy production, right? <laughs> yep, yep. In the backfield, I mean, this is pretty gross. It, it always seems like the Texans are a three-way split no matter who is back there. And sure enough, three-way sp- uh, split here between Rex Burkhead, who had 16 rushes for 41 yards, uh, David Johnson, who had six rushes for 24 yards, and Royce Freeman, who went three for eight. Yeah, David Johnson, it was interesting. David Johnson got five of his six touches, or no, six or seven of his touches on the first drive of the game. And after that, they really went away from them. Uh, they did get a special teams touchdown, which kind of cemented them in the lead. I think they see Burkhead as kind of their grind back, but they want him in for the rundowns when they go heavy. And David Johnson just didn't fit that role anymore for them. Okay, I think we can move on to the Jaguar side of things where uh, James Robinson was the bright spot, uh, projected to have a big game here. And he kind of did. didn't have a huge game, but 75 yards on the ground on 18 rushes and gets in the end zone. He also got six targets going three for 13. So, you know, basically had the entire backfield to himself with Dari Gumbwale only getting one rush and more or less delivered. Yeah, this is a weird game for the Jaguars. They had like 160 yards in their first two drives. And, and I was thinking with the Texans having all their players on the COVID list, really, uh, this could be a spot where the Jaguars start piling up points. But then they just came out extremely flat the rest of the game. Robinson had some up and down carries on first down, kind of got them in some uh, bad down distance situations and just Trevor Lawrence couldn't keep it going. Yeah. And Lawrence had a really, well, I I don't know. It wasn't maybe super, super rough. I suppose he he had 210 rushing yards or 210 passing yards. Excuse me. There were worse days than this. There were actually quite a few worse days than this, uh, this week, but not very efficient. Only 22 for 38 doesn't throw a touchdown. Doesn't throw an interception either, to be fair. And then went five for 21 on the ground, didn't rush for it. So he doesn't produce any touchdowns. The only touchdown uh, came from James Robinson. Uh, so, and then I guess a bunch of field goals. Yeah, Robinson's touchdown actually came with a Jaguars fan running onto the field, too. So, bonus points in uh, oh. fantasy leagues. Uh, Trevor Lawrence did not uh, look especially efficient, no. Um, his receivers are pretty bad. But I feel like he also was taking a lot of time in the pocket to try to bail them out and get late in the down. That didn't really work very much for him. And even with the Texans having a depleted defensive line, took three sacks, uh, I think took four hits. You know, you, when you've got guys like Derek Rivers and Chris Smith sacking you, that's really not something that should happen if you're a franchise quarterback. Yeah, and I, I guess at this point, like James O'Shaughnessy is the only guy that we would care about here. He had four for 60. Um, you know, that's something. Yeah, O'Shaughnessy had the long catch of the game, 30 yards, came on a fake screenplay where they uh, deke underneath to uh, a receiver, and O'Shaughnessy's guy jumped that route, and O'Shaughnessy was wide open down the middle of the field. So not like (laughs) – again, not like he he was feasting and beating guys one-on-one or anything, but yeah, long man. So the one thing that looked okay was actually a gimmick. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right. Rivers McCown, thank you. I watched this game, so you didn't have to, America. (laughs) 
The Bills defeated the Panthers 31-14 to in a game where Devin Singletary had 22 carries, the most by a Bills runner all season. I covered this game, and let's start on the Bills' side because I think the Devin Singletary stat is indicative of how this game went. It was not the typical Bills where you were seeing not just more rushing than we're used to, but more rushing on first down more of a kind of conservative play calling in general where you know you sometimes would see some passes on first down, but they were screens, they were short stuff. Uh, the Bills looked like they were trying to control the ball a little bit more, play kind of the, the time of possession game a little bit more. Um, or maybe, I, I don't know what the, the motivation exactly was, but they were definitely more conservative than they usually are. Josh Allen still did have 34 passing attempts. He only had 210 yards passing, though. Uh, he had three passing touchdowns, which which was nice. But uh, as a result of a little bit more conservative, uh, a, a more conservative nature from the Bills than we're used to, Stephon Diggs only had 35 yards receiving. He had four receptions uh, on seven targets. He did get in the end zone, uh, so that was nice. But yeah, not quite the Diggs game uh, that that we want to see. The, uh, the touchdown that he had was on a, on play action. Pretty nice play, but uh, it was his longest of the day. 11 yards was his longest reception of the day. Gabriel Davis led the way in terms of the receiving yards here. He had 85 yards, catching five balls on seven targets, and he had two touchdowns. The first touchdown was really nice. Uh, found him for 20 yards in the back of the end zone. Uh Beautiful throw by Josh Allen, who looked pretty good when he was actually back there throwing. He didn't run as much as, as he usually does, but he looked pretty good. One of his better throws of the day was that throw to Gabriel Davis in the back of the end zone for a touchdown. And then his second touchdown, Gabriel Davis, came on a play-action pass at the end of the game where uh, I believe it's fourth and three, and the Panthers were kind of selling out to stop the run. Josh Allen play actioned. It was one of those things where he could he could have run for it, but instead he also had Gabriel Davis just completely wide open. He threw it to him for a second touchdown. And you know the the Bills weren't really struggling. It, at times they 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 had drive stall out and everything, but uh, I think they were sort of setting themselves up for some tough second and third downs because of pounding Devin Singletary into the line a, a fair amount. Uh, it was not. A strong day from Singletary, I would say, overall. Uh, but he did have a 16-yard rushing touchdown early in the game where he looked really good. He had a nice burst, uh, and then he dove across the goal line, kind of barely made it across with you know a defender. He, he made contact on his way to the goal line, but did, in fact, uh, get across the goal line before his elbow came down. So that was a really nice run. He had total control of the backfield. Zach Moss was a healthy scratch here. Matt Breda only had one rush in this game for one yard. Devin Singletary had one target as well, going one for 10, but Matt Breda was not targeted. So total control. Isaiah McKenzie had a wildcat snap, was the only other rush, uh, you know, kind of backfield attempt, uh, if you will, even though McKenzie's a receiver. And then Josh Allen ran three times for 24 yards. Uh, Allen on his one basically had one real rush. Uh, the other two, I believe, were kneel downs. But he had a 26-yard rush where uh, 
he broke two tackles, like fully broke two tackles just by kind of being big and, and moving already at a fast rate. He just kind of barreled guys over uh, and bounced off them. Uh, that was a really nice play, but it did seem clear that they didn't, you know, and this, this could be one of the reasons that Devin Singletary was getting so much work in the backfield is that they didn't want Josh Allen to even have the chance to be scrambling around as much and, and to be running around as much. And, and also the wildcat snap to Isaiah McKenzie. You have to wonder if maybe that would have been a direct snap to Josh Allen as a run play had Allen not been dealing with a foot sprain that he suffered last week, but Allen did not look like he was, you know, hampered by anything. He didn't look immobile. Uh, I just think they're trying to maybe take it a little bit easy on him in terms of the rushing work. Uh, overall, I, I guess maybe one thing to note is that they do play the Patriots next. The volume type guys, n- notably Cole Beasley, probably would be the bis- biggest example of this where he only had four for 35 on eight targets. I think he's he definitely hurt in these types of scripts where if they're going to be more conservative, which they could be against the Patriots who are kind of a run funnel, um, definitely something to keep in mind with Beasley. If, if the volume's not going to be there, that hurts him. And then Dawson Knox hurt a little bit as well because kind of a volume play, although obviously a tight end, we have less options. He's more valuable because of the tight end eligibility. He went four for 38 on five targets. And one note I'll make on Dawson Knox is that he was out for like very few plays in this game. Tommy Sweeney was in, though, on an important second down. They were backed up with penalty, and it was a play-action pass. Sweeney's open over the middle. Allen hits him in stride. Sweeney's got room to run, and Sweeney like grabbed the ball. It kind of he, he caught it above his head, and he had two hands on it, like completely on it, to the point that it almost looked like intentional to where he dropped the ball, but he he almost kind of grabbed it out of the air and then spiked it into the ground. It was it was a very strange drop. Immediately, Dawson Knox comes back out. Like his role couldn't be any more secure as kind of the guy who's going to run you know, 85, 90% of the routes, kind of like Logan Thomas last year. I mean, he's, he's just going to run all the routes uh, at the tight end position. So you can count on that for Dawson Knox, even though this wasn't the best day. Moving over to the Panthers side, DJ Moore, you know, he's really doing his best here. Uh, he only had six for 48 on 11 targets, doesn't get in the end zone. He does score a two-point conversion, which was a beautiful one-handed catch. Not a good throw by Cam Newton, who kind of led him too far, but he's still able to make the catch. It would have been nice if Cam Newton would have led DJ Moore on what could have been a 56-yard touchdown. Moore completely burned the secondary, got behind everybody, and if he had just been hit in stride, truly he would have gone 56 yards to the house, but Cam Newton just completely underthrew him. Like badly, bad. One of the worst underthrows that I've seen personally all year. Uh, reminds me of, of a of Mike Glennon throw. Or it was a Jared Goff throw that was absolutely terrible. And this kind of compares to that, where it was underthrown so badly that it turned what should have been a long touchdown, not into you know like a, a kind of mediocre quarterback would turn that into more having to stop, gather, catch the ball, and, you know, he gets tackled. But this was so underthrown that it was an incompletion. And Moore's kind of coming all the way back and now fighting through traffic just to get to the ball. Uh, so Cam Newton not setting Moore up for success there. And that was really the only opportunity I think Moore had to get, you know, a, a really big day out of this. 
but still does lead the way with 11 targets, still ties for the team lead in receiving yards, but only 48, and the ties with Amir Abdullah. He had a 23-yard touchdown in this game in the fourth quarter, caught the ball over the middle, uh, nice kind of catch and run, and, uh, you know, not great when a running back leads you in receiving yards. He had four catches on four targets. Robbie Anderson had three for 29 here on eight targets, but Robbie Anderson also did have a 30-yard rush. He also got another three-yard rush. 30-yard rush was nice, kind of a a reverse. uh, Pretty nice run by Anderson. Definitely looks like they're trying to get him more involved. Um, But at the same time, Cam Newton only threw for 156 yards here. Uh, He was 18 for 38, not efficient. Just he didn't look terrible. Uh, He threw an interception, which was a bad throw. Uh, It was a it was a bad throw into zone coverage. Just shouldn't have been made, but it was at the end of the game. It's kind of one of those things where the game was like already over. I'm not gonna not gonna kill Cam for that. Uh, but at the same time, he didn't look very good. Uh, wasn't moving the offense all that well. He did rush 15 times for 71 yards and a touchdown. The touchdown was a direct snap uh, design. Well, obviously direct snap, but it was kind of a designed run. I think he might as well have been a wildcat running back. Um, and from from the four, I believe he ran that in. So you know he's he's Cam Newton, kind of classic Cam Newton stuff. Uh, I should mention Josh Allen threw an interception as well. His interception was actually a really nice play by the defender, um, I believe Jeremy Chin, who he kind of baited Allen where he was on coverage and he he came up like he's kind of covering the flat, and then as soon as he got down there, he immediately started backing up and extended fully because he knew that Allen was going to be throwing behind him to Diggs and got the interception. So, you know, maybe not the best decision by Allen, got fooled, but uh, but ultimately I think a pretty nice defensive play. So so not like a terrible decision by Allen. Um, but, yeah, to, to close things out here, just mentioned that Chuba Hubbard had eight for 40 on the ground. Mir Abdullah had four for seven, but obviously – Abdullah had four for 48, as I mentioned, and then Hubbard only one reception for one yard on one target. So uh, Abdullah, definitely the guy here in the receiving scripts, as we suspected, as we expected as well. And next week they play the Buccaneers. So moving forward, I think Abdullah is kind of going to be the guy here. Hubbard getting squeezed both by Abdullah in the receiving game and by Cam Newton at the goal line. I think he's a pretty, pretty weak fill-in. RB2 option, but that'll do it for the Bills and the Panthers. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. We're headed down the backstretch of the NFL season, and the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet has you covered with Sunday Night 7. We're giving you a shot to win $1 million every Sunday night throughout the rest of the regular season. It's free and easy to play. So predict what will happen between Washington football team and the Cowboys for a chance to win. Download today from your app store or visit NBCSports.com slash predictor. The Cowboys defeated the Giants 21-6. to And despite the victory, Dak Prescott has not thrown two touchdowns or more since Thanksgiving versus the Raiders. Jack Miller, the Cowboys got the win here, but this was a Mike Glennon-led Giants team. What does it really tell us about the Cowboys? I don't think it says that much. Offensively, the Cowboys really did not look all that great. And and like you said, a big reason that they won was because of Mike Glennon uh, throwing three picks, and then they had a couple other costly turnovers. Uh, Dak did not look that great. He missed C.D. Lamb on on what would have been a big play late in the first half that might have improved his box score stat line and and a play that they probably connect on most of the time. But um, for most of the day, it was not a super impressive performance out of Prescott or really anyone on the Cowboys offense outside of maybe Dalton Schultz. Yeah, Dalton Schultz led the team with 67 receiving yards. He had eight receptions, which also led the team on eight targets, just one behind CeeDee Lamb, and he uh, scored Dak's only passing Dak's only passing touchdown went to Schultz. Uh, Tony Pollard, I mean, I think maybe he would take offense to not being impressive. 12 for 74, 6.2 yards per carry, also had – three receptions for 13 yards on three targets. And this is coming off the torn plantar fascia. Weren't sure how good he was going to look. Did he look kind of like classic Tony Pollard? Yeah, he did. Um, And yeah, he he definitely was impressive too. And I think it was especially encouraging because there were reports in the pregame that maybe he was only going to get a couple dozen snaps and and maybe Corey Clement figures in um, again, but Pollard pretty much played his, his usual allotment. And then he, averaged six yards per carry to Zeke's 3.3 yards per carry, which is becoming something of a trend with these Cowboys backs. But yeah, Pollard looked like normal normal Pollard for the most part. How did Zeke look? He you know, mentioned he didn't have the best yards per carry, but he did get in the end zone, had 52 yards on 16 rushes, and he also had four targets going three for 20. Yeah, he looked pretty normal. I mean, he had a 13-yard rushing touchdown that, that kicked off the scoring. But besides that, there wasn't too much notable out of Zeke. Um, he didn't look like aggressively bad or anything. It's just he didn't he didn't stand out very much. Thoughts on the passing of offense overall here before we move to the Giants, just because, you know, Schultz had been, I believe he had back-to-back games of an 8% target per route run, uh, so just which is really low. Um, and so just not in the mix. And now he leads the team in both receptions and yards, only one to get in the end zone. So obviously, you know, further dividing a target tree that's pretty split. Lamb only had six for 50 on nine targets. Amari Cooper had just two for eight on five targets. Uh, Michael Gallup had three for 32 on five targets. So not productive days really from any of these guys. 
Yet at the same time, like one of the advantages of having this many quality targets is supposed to be that your quarterback goes off and has a big day. And the Giants, you know, they're beatable through the air, yet Prescott only has 217 yards. So just any thoughts to close out here, uh, just kind of on the state of this passing offense? Yeah, they just have so many weapons that I think it might be kind of volatile on a week-to-week basis, but in general, you don't want to um, overreact to one bad week. And I think Schultz, this is probably going to be more of an anomaly, especially now that all three receivers are back. He had some big performances early in the year when Gallup or Amari or someone else was out. Um, but now that all three wideouts are back, I think it's mostly going to be those guys leading the attack for the Cowboys, even right, if that wasn't talk- so much the case today. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk on the Giants' side. Saquon Barkley had 50 yards on 15 carries. Um, he also had four receptions for 24 yards on eight carries, but he lost a fumble. And Devontae Booker actually led the team with 74 rushing yards on eight on eight rushes. Yeah, Booker had a huge carry down the right sideline in the first quarter, um, and so that's kind of pumping up his style line a lot. I think a lot of the time you'd expect – Saquon to be the one breaking off those big 30-plus yard runs. But today, uh, it was Devontae Booker who did that. Um, Saquon Saquon was fine. I mean, he had a big fumble late in the first half that directly led to the Cowboys uh, getting points in the two-minute drill. Um, besides that, I mean, his efficiency wasn't great. 15 carries for 50 yards. But I think that's kind of be, to be expected when you're dealing with Mike Glennon and Jake Fromm at quarterback. Um, so I think moving forward, Saquon is kind of just that volume dependent, you know, two dimensional volume dependent uh, RB2 type who might struggle with efficiency just because of the offense. Yeah. And uh, the the Giants beat writers this week were kind of joking like they were basically saying, like, I'm not joking. You are going to see Jake Fromm this week. It was like kind of a bit that wasn't a bit. They kept talking about how Jake Fromm was going to play. And sure enough, he he didn't just play a 12 passing attempts to Glennon's 24. How did that come about? Was it the very end of the game or was like Glennon bench for from? It, it was the end of the game, but I think it was a benching because it came after a Glennon interception. Um, so it's kind of hard to tell. And I guess we'll see throughout the week, but from didn't come in until I think the last, there were like five minutes left in the game, but Glennon had been so bad all day that I think it was brought about by performance rather than score. Um, I mean, Glennon had 24 pass attempts and couldn't even break 100 yards. He threw three picks. He was just – it was brutal to watch all day long. Um, and if this I happened really, in five I, minutes, I mean, Fromm had 82 passing yards to Mike Glennon's 99. So it, it's pretty wild if it, you know, if it was <laughs> that little time. Yeah, and, and Fromm had – I forget who it was, but two receivers dropped to a Fromm's ball, so it could have been even more. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, just, just not great out of Glennon and from, I would say look better. Interesting. Uh, any connections with, with from where he was going to, cause there's just really nothing here with the receivers. So if he was dialed in on anyone, I guess that'd be worth noting, but, but you know, small sample. So maybe, maybe, uh, that wouldn't be something we should take away anyway. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it is a small sample. I think he, he had Galladay a couple times, if I'm remembering correctly, I think the most notable thing of the receivers is that very late in the game, Sterling Shepard tore his Achilles um, and, you know, out for the year now. So I think Galladay, Kadarius, Tony, if healthy, those guys should see a pretty decent sized bump in targets um, if Tony can come back next week. And then Galladay had, he had seven targets, which was most among 
the receivers. Uh, Saquon had had him by one there, but he actually did not have a catch until like halfway into the second half. So, yeah. Oh wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you noted that about Shepard. That's obviously uh, that's a big deal. But Jack Miller, thanks so much. Yep, for sure. The 49ers defeated the Falcons 31 to 13 in a game where Debo Samuel is setting some records. He now has seven rushing touchdowns, the most by a wide receiver in Super Bowl in the Super Bowl era. He also has five straight games with a rushing touchdown. Previous record was two. Kyle Dvorak, Debo Samuel is doing some things as like a running back slash wide receiver. Yeah, he's definitely playing legitimately both. If I had to guess, I'd look at his snaps and I'd say he probably still played more wide receiver. But every snap he takes as running back seems like he's getting a carry. It's not like, uh, you know, he doesn't have to be in the backfield pass blocking, right? You can just use him as a runner. And they even got him work like straight up between the tackles. His first like carry or two, I noticed unsurprisingly were like outside stuff, like maybe some outside zone. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Like he's, you know, he's obviously not built like your traditional running back. He is probably heftier than a wide receiver, but not nearly that build of a running back. Makes sense to try and get him in space. And then like the almost one of the last plays of the game, it was like right around the two minute warning was uh, like just Straight up, I think it was second down between the tackles trying to grind out some clock with Debo Samuel. I think they legitimately <laughs> just view him as the backup to uh, to Jeff Wilson. Like they're just not using Jamichael Hasty as the second guy, whether it be between the tackles or not. They're going to give Debo Samuel that role. So he's like, I guess that technically makes him like fifth on the depth chart at running back, but they've obviously lost a lot of guys. So, or fourth probably. So, yeah, I think he is like legitimately just a wide receiver who's also the emergency backup running back. And they are in a spot where when Jeff Wilson needs a breather, the next guy up is Debo. So that's like, he's just straight up playing some snaps as the RB2 on the team and then still plays wide receiver. It was nice to see him also get uh, at least a decent amount of receiving work in this game as well. Although his touchdown did come on the ground because that's kind of this concern, right? That he plays too much running back to the extent that he goes out and becomes a three or four target player. This was a little better. Uh, It was mostly that he was efficient on a modest receiving volume or modest receiving uh, target volume, but it was better than nothing. I think he had had like three or four straight games, one or two catches. So Better output as a receiver, still getting there as a running back. Dumb efficient again, of course. I think he was averaging like a touchdown on every seven carries coming into this game. Scored on one of six carries. So that's still a bit of a shaky foundation to be on. (laughs) But with the receiving work better, he's still, how can you not rank this guy as like a a solid wide receiver too, even though it's a very weird way to get there. Yeah, it, it really is. But, you know, you mentioned he's up from where he had been. And within the context of the offense here, Pretty impressive. You have five targets going four for 60 as a receiver, like leaving aside the rushing stuff in a day on a day where Garoppolo only threw 23 times, only throws for 235 yards and one touchdown. That's a pretty good day for a receiver. I mean, Brandon Ayuk in comparison had one for 36 <laughs> on two targets. So, you know, the fact that he's also getting used six rushes, 29 yards and a touchdown today, it felt maybe more like a bonus, whereas some other weeks it's like, almost kind of hampered him as a wide receiver. Yeah, with how he performed as a wide receiver this week, uh, it was definitely more of what you hope to see where he, like, like you want him to be the peak of Cordero Patterson, which we've actually moved away from Patterson. I guess it's also this game is part to talk about, where he's just kind of a between the tackles runner who's really good as a receiver and doesn't probably get used enough as that spot. You want him to be that early season Patterson where, you know, he's getting some carry, sure, but they are perfectly willing to just play him out wide as the wide receiver still. And it looked like that this game. That's what you want is all of the high leverage efficiency type of running plays and then still the bulk of his snaps at wide receiver. And it looked a little more like that. So you're more comfortable with him right now. 
Let's talk Patterson, then we'll go back to, to the sure. 49ers. But kind of while we're on these hybrid guys, he led the backfield in touches with 11 carries uh, for 18 yards, not, not particularly efficient. And he only had two targets going two for five. And it does seem like he's trended to just being like a true running back, you know, obviously a pass catching running back, but not the hybrid guy recently. Was that kind of your read on it? And um, I believe he almost scored a touchdown in this game or a touchdown that was overturned, right? He did have a touchdown. I believe it was on the very first drive. We had, um, I think it was Jermichael Hasty returning the kick, fumbled it on his own 14. Falcons get the ball, get down to the one from the 14, not a long drive, and then get uh, four and out on the goal line exactly. Patterson had one, if not two, goal line carries, one of which was in the end zone and then overturned to be not in the end zone. Yeah, he's just playing a normal running back role. I saw coming into mm-hmm. this game, next-gen stats, had him as facing, I believe, the highest rate of eight-plus defenders in the box when he's running. Like, he is both used as a between-the-tackles player, and his opponents typically know that because they're able to stack the box against him. They have essentially one other player worth defending in Kyle Pitts. When you can put a safety over top and then a corner underneath on him, you've like you've pretty much like neutralized the entire passing attack outside of some Russell Gage reception. So it makes it pretty easy to also defend the run when there's one like one pass catching, not wide receiver, but he essentially plays wide receiver. One pass catcher outside of Patterson worth defending. You can also dedicate players to Patterson. So yeah, he plays a pretty traditional running back role at this point, and it's not the most valuable on a Falcons team that really can't muster a ton of offense. All right, we talked about the hybrid guys. Let's talk about the traditional yeah. guys. Let's go back over to Jeff Jeff Wilson, who had 110 yards and a touchdown on 21 carries here. And he also had uh, two targets going two for nine. This is like workhorse stuff. I mean, if, if Debo wasn't in here to steal you know, that extra touchdown, this could have been a really, really big day for Wilson. Yeah, it's exactly like you said. When they, uh, like, especially the, the catches, even though two is not a lot, I believe it was a uh, season high for him. If he can just sprinkle in some small semblance of value whenever they are in, like this game obviously wasn't the case, but if they are ever like losing a game and you can just say he picks up some of the third downs, they leave him in for a two-minute drill, whether it be on accident or not, he would really be like an elite option. Right now, I still think we're trending more towards him just being the guy they establish when they're playing in competitive or blowout non-competitive like this was but he also just looked better he's been pretty inefficient as a starter this year this was a much better performance it's not a defense that you think would stifle a player uh, of jeff wilson's caliber but they weren't able to so it looked like it was all all signs pointed to him at least being at minimum almost all of the carries outside of a few debo runs and i think i saw earlier in the week that they aren't expecting to get elijah mitchell back so he's probably in line for like volume-based rb2 at least for one more week wow okay uh, I mentioned Ayuk only having 36 yards on two targets, uh, but Juwan Jennings got in the end zone here, three for 28 on six targets, and then George Kittle led the team with 93 yards, led the team with six targets, or tied Jennings with six targets, <laughs> and uh, had six receptions, which, which led the team as well. Yeah, man, Kittle is really good. It's uh, he's just so good. It's it's awesome. Like, uh, this might not have been the most entertaining game. It was what eighteen point deficit, and I don't think the Falcons even scored in the second half, if I remember correctly. But man, just watching Kittle's treat, he only gets six targets, and of course, he catches all of them because he's great. And he had two of them that went for over twenty yards. I think they're both at least twenty five yards. He's just like so much physically, uh, like he's just so physically different that he can be 
he seems to be as fast as any wide receiver, you know, outside of the, the real speedsters, while being as big as like a, a small guard. And that is just an incredibly difficult matchup for for cornerbacks and even big safeties to face. So as long as they are throwing like a minimum of 20 times, like even if they throw a low amount of mm-hmm. volume now with Debo playing still a mix of wide receiver and running back, he's kind of just their top receiver. And George Kittle as a team's number one receiver is truly dangerous for both his fantasy output and the offense. So yeah, I like I don't have to tell you to start him, but I, I think is he's gotta be. I, I think personally he is both the best tight end in the NFL and more importantly, the tight end one for how many ever weeks we have left. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think he's he's the best tight end in the NFL and the tight end one. Uh, let's move to the Falcons side. Uh, you mentioned Kyle Pitts is kind of the the only real wide receiver of note in this offense, which I think is accurate, even though he's technically a tight end. Yeah. Uh, four for 77 here on seven targets. Russell Gage, though, led the team with eight for 91 and a touchdown on 11 targets. Thoughts on Matt Ryan and the receivers here? Yeah, I mean, there's not uh, like too much to take away. Gage has to be fair, moved himself into a pretty valuable like borderline wide receiver to type of PPR role just because when you are losing so many games and you have a competent quarterback, I don't think Matt Ryan is close to where he was like three, four years ago, but you have a competent quarterback. You have a receiver who's going to play a decent amount of the snaps in Russell Gage, and he's okay. He's a starting caliber receiver. He's going to get pepper with targets when Kyle Pitts is locked up, and that has been the case in the past three or four weeks. I think in the past four weeks, he's gone over 60 yards in every single game. Past five, his worst game is 49 yards, and he has two touchdowns as well. So he's kind of becoming the de facto focal point of the offense. It reminds me of when Jarvis Landry is forced to be the focal point of an offense. It probably limits the ceiling of the offense because you're not getting a ton of explosive plays, but for the fantasy value of that individual player, it's a pretty good spot to be in. So as much as I say, you know, once Kyle Pitts is neutralized, you can just forget about the passing attack. From a fantasy perspective, Gage, like, He's a pretty good bet to be a wide receiver two weekly. I don't know if he really has a ton of wide receiver one juice, but his volume is pretty solid. Yeah, it's a, maybe a little similar to the Amon Ross St. Brown breakout. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Good comp. Good comp. Uh, any notes on the uh, running backs, like the true running backs in Mike Davis, Kadri Allison, uh, anything going on in this backfield besides Cordell Patterson? No, and because Cordell Patterson has moved into the more traditional non-hybrid role, he just goes out and does, uh, like, he still gets some screens and stuff. But since he's moved into this role, there's really not a ton of value. I know Mike Davis saw 16 touches two weeks ago. We didn't see that Mike Davis again this week, and I'm not sure why we would expect it. He's been dreadfully inefficient. The team just isn't incentivized to try and get Mike Davis going, whatever that's worth. So, yeah, the, the Kyle Pitts thing is so disappointing. I do believe they play Detroit next week, so, like, it's been a pretty disappointing season for him in terms of what you paid from a fantasy perspective. He's actually going to have one of the better rookie tight end, the rookie tight end, just counting right. stats type of seasons. But in terms of how the offense has looked under, you know, with Pitts as the, I'll call him the wide receiver one, Sands Ridley. And in terms of what you paid from, for a fantasy perspective, I'll call it disappointing from that angle. If there were a time where he can buck the trend, it would obviously be next week against the Lions. So, you know, I was playing him anyways because he's seeing pretty solid volume. Like he's like top five in air yards, top 10 or so in targets. That's good enough volume to say like, oh, he should probably outscore James O'Shaughnessy next week. If you've made it this far while playing Kyle Pitts, hopefully you get rewarded. I know he had 77 yards in this game. One of it was 49 yards in garbage time. It's not like the defense was giving it up completely. They were still playing their starters. Admittedly, though, a little fluky. I think next week, though, you've waited. He had two really hit 200 yard games for weeks like four and five. You've waited since then to see elite Kyle Pitts. Given the matchup, we may get one more elite Kyle Pitts game in the rest of the year. 
Let's hope. And even though the Lions beat the Cardinals today, we did have Zach Ertz going off. He went six for 74 and 11 targets. I think some of that came from Colt McCoy. But, <laughs> you know, what? it was a weird game. So we, we got the Ertz game. We can get the Pitts game, right, out of the Lions here. Yeah, if, if Ertz can get there, uh, I would really hope, especially if Ertz can get there with some Colt McCoy. I feel I feel good about if you've been – I don't know how you made it this far with Kyle Pitts because the opportunity cost was high. But if you did make it this far, uh, you will be rewarded. All right, Kyle Dvorak, thanks so much. All right, that'll do it for Week 15's Recap Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to check us out next week as we recap Week 16. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.